you're ready to encounter God's presence this morning. Uh, we're going to be doing that in John chapter 9. I want to invite you to go ahead and turn with me there uh, in your Bibles. If you have a Bible, uh, I encourage you especially uh, for today uh, to be turned there. If not, we will have them on the screen behind me as well as uh, there are Bibles in the seat back to you in front of you as well. But before we even get in, let us uh, go to the Lord in a word of prayer over the preaching and teaching of his word. So if you would pray with me. God, we love you. Lord, we thank you. Uh, your presence is definitely in this place as we know one from the scripture assuring us where two or more gather there is your presence as well. And, and we also know because we feel it. Uh, and so I just thank you, God, that, um, that you are here in this place. And as we approach your word to interact with you, God, I pray that you would remove all obstacles, all barriers, that you would protect myself from uh, preaching false truth or anything against what your word says, God, but just let it be from you and you alone. Uh, let us hear what you have for us, pierce our hearts, convict us, God, in a way that draws us back to you. Lord, I know there are people in this place that don't know you, and I pray that they would, they would come to know you through your word here this morning. And so, God, we just give you this time as it is already yours, um, and just ask you to speak to us in a powerful way that only you can. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, the reason I ask you, especially so today, to turn with me in your Bibles is because we're going to be walking through all of John chapter 9. I normally say turn to this chapter, and then I'll give the specific verse references, but today we're going to be in all of John chapter 9. The reason is it's one story, um, and normally what we do, just to give you kind of some context of how we're going to walk through it today, normally we'll read all the text at the front, and, and then we will begin walking through it, but today's going to be a little different. Um, we're going to read it in little chunks as we go, um, and so it'll just be easier to follow along if you have a Bible um, in front of you, but it will be on the screen behind me as well. And so we're going to start off with verses 1 through 7, John chapter 9, uh, 1 through 7. I invite you to read along with me. It says this, as he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while, it's, while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud, from the saliva and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. Now this is a powerful story for lots of reasons, but it kind of starts off in the first verse with uh, the disciples, probably unknowingly, bringing up a pretty uh, significant theological uh, truth and even debate today, and it's the relationship uh, between sin and suffering, the relationship between sin and suffering. And, and I would argue that most people in the world today believe that there is a relationship between sin and suffering to, to some degree. They may not use those exact words, but they may say things like, oh, that's just karma, right? Like you do something bad, something bad happens to you. Um, different belief systems around the world have uh, different ways they understand the relationship between sin and suffering. If you do this particular thing, then 
then God will make this bad thing happen to you, right? And, and as Christians, we also understand a relationship between sin and suffering. And, and here the disciples uh, bring up kind of an old, an old Testament view that, that the Pharisees had kind of taken and twisted in that relationship because we believe in the grand sense of relationship between those two things where, for, for example, if, if you sin, right, you warrant the consequence of eternal suffering, right? That's the effects of our sin or the consequence of us sinning against the Holy God. It warrants eternal punishment, which is suffering under the wrath of God, right? So that's the, the general premise of the relationship between sin and suffering that Christians recognize, but the disciples here are pointing out something different, right? They're saying that that which sin of this man or his parents caused him to be blind, meaning it's a more direct relationship, right? A more uh, tangible relationship that we actually see play out here in the world today. Now, I wouldn't say they're 100% wrong, but the thing is that's always the case. Jesus definitely goes to show that that is not true. And we see that in verse 3. It says uh, in verse 3 um, that, if I can find it in my text, Jesus answered him, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And just to go even a little bit deeper as to how crazy this thought is, it was common belief then, is they actually thought that the man's sin could have been the, 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 what caused his blindness. And if you think about that, he was blind from birth, which means that he would have had to have sinned in his mother's womb, which is actually a belief that many of the people back in that day held, and many of the Pharisees believed as well. Um, but Jesus, whether it was him or his parents, kind of dispels that belief that, that it didn't happen for, for that reason at all, but rather so that God's works might be displayed in him. And this statement makes a pretty big assumption that's going to act as our main point as we walk through the rest of chapter 9. And that, and that is this, that, that this statement assumes that the manifestation or the displaying of uh, the works of God in this blind man has a joy value that far outweighs his years of blindness. When Jesus says this, like this happens so that God will be glorified, he's basically assuming that the gift of God's work being displayed in him far outweighs his years of blindness. Now for us, and I'm going to get to it in just a moment, there is tremendous symbolism in the fact that he's a blind man. Because not only is he talking about physical blindness, but also spiritual blindness. But first let me give kind of the main point in a, in a big, long sentence that we're going to have on the screen behind me. If you, if you, I won't, I'll only give it once, but, but just to, to see it kind of all laid out, here's, here's what we see from Jesus' interaction with this man, and we see it played out through the rest of our text. But it's this, the manifestation, which again is just another word for, for the displaying of or the revealing of, but the, the manifestation of the works of God, so the displaying of God's works, in your life has a joy value that far outweighs the guilt of your former life, but also the difficulties in your present life. So let me just kind of say that in maybe an easier way to understand. Um, When God works in your life, the joy that follows is far greater than the years of not knowing him, the living in sinfulness and the shame and the guilt that follows, as well as the difficulties that you, you face day to day as Christians. All right, so, so let me then jump back to the, the symbolism in this man being blind. So, so what does this mean then if you are here 
and you don't know Jesus. Right? This is where the spiritual blindness comes into play. There are, and all of us have been spiritually blind at one point or another, and maybe you are in here today and you don't really know what brought you here or, or why you're here, or, you, or maybe you have some thoughts, but, but the beauty about this passage that Jesus is saying is that the joy of my working right, far outweighs the, the guilt, the past, the sin that you've experienced in your life today. But if you're here and you are a Christian, right, the symbolism of this passage, also referring to his literal physical blindness, tells us and shows us that for believers, right, the joyful workings of God in our life also outweigh the present struggles that we're going to walk through, the circumstances of our life that are difficult. For example, if you think of the person like Job, Right? Job faced all kinds of difficulties, and actually the, the big conflict that he has with his friends as they then go on to debate for most of the book of Job is that his friends were trying to tell him that the reason for his struggles were a direct result of his sinfulness, meaning you did this, therefore now God is punishing you in these earthly ways. When Job was arguing, yes, I'm sinful, but these things happening to me aren't a direct result of my sinfulness. Right? And Job was right. right? He, he wasn't right throughout all that he did and said, um, but he was right and that there wasn't a direct correlation. However, God's big words to him is that, that regardless of what we walk through, the joy that we experience far outweighs those difficulties. And the reason that that's joyful for us is that in, in what it's, we're going to walk through it in just a moment, why it's so amazing for the world is that when they see us walk through difficult things yet still joyful, it points them to the one true God, the only one who could possibly offer and extend joy in those circumstances. So, regardless of whether you're here as a non-believer, a believer, these words speak to us in a pretty powerful way. Now, the second thing I want to point out before we get into, there's, there's five kind of interactions that follow these first seven verses, but before we get to those interactions, the other thing I want to point out is the significance of Jesus using mud. Because what I don't want to happen after today is for us to all leave this place looking for people that can't see, right, spitting in the dirt, rubbing it in their eyes, and hoping that they can see, right? Um, because we know that this isn't a, a template for us to follow necessarily. Rather, Jesus is, is doing it with intentionality to tell us a few things, right? The first thing that he's telling us is because he doesn't need to use mud, right? He could say, and he did say at other points in Scripture, open your eyes and see, and people can open their eyes and see, right? But he's making a couple different points. I believe the first is, is he is actually doing this on the Sabbath day. And we're going to read that a little bit further down in our text. Uh, but the Pharisees had actually created a law around the Sabbath, which, again, the Sabbath is a day of rest, kind of established, I mean, all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. Uh, but the Pharisees, because they were so worried about breaking the Sabbath, they created all these laws about things you couldn't and could and couldn't do to, to define whether or not you're working on the Sabbath. And one of the things was you couldn't knead dough, right? And, and the word knead can be applied to, to even here, that Jesus is kneading together the water and the dirt. And, so we're, and again, we're going to see it later as we walk through the rest of this passage. But the Pharisees thought that he had broken the law by using dirt. Right? And so Jesus, in using dirt, is figuratively spitting in the face of uh, the Pharisaical law that's not actually biblical law by essentially saying, I am Lord over the Sabbath. Right, so Jesus is making an authority claim by using dirt and making mud on the Sabbath. It's not just some fancy magic trick to make the man see. 
And she was demonstrating his authority by doing what they would have considered work on the day that's specifically designed for rest. So we see that Jesus has authority in the way that he heals this blind man. The second thing we see that I find really interesting that I'm going to do my best not to talk on for too long is the significance of him using dirt in the first place, going again all the way back to Genesis, because what do you remember God made Adam out of? The, the dirt or the dust of the earth, right? He breathed his life into it. And so the fact that Jesus would use dirt here is really to remind us that, that God doesn't need to use means to bring about uh, his works or his will, but he chooses to use means. Right? And the fact that he uses dirt here is just, a, again, a, sim- a symbolism going all the way back to Genesis to say that, that God doesn't have to use you and I to make his name known, but he chooses to use you and I to make his name known. I didn't need to use mud, but he chose to. He doesn't need to use you and I, but he has chose to. And so, this is even further demonstrated by the sending of the beggar to the pool of Siloam, which is called Sent, and Jesus' words, which we see all throughout the New Testament, but especially Matthew 28, where he tells the beggar to go. Right? Just as he is using it to heal him, he is also using the beggar and commissioning him out as well. And so, With all of this being said, this leaves us with the rest of the text where we see these truths play out in the life of the beggar, right? So the first seven verses that we just read kind of give us our main truth, right? Which again is that that God's working in the lives of people uh, are bring about more joy than, or, or joy that outweighs our old life as well as the difficulties of our current life. And we see that truth play out in in five interactions that follow. Um, He had the initial interaction with Jesus, and then the next interaction he has with his his neighbors. He has an interaction with the Pharisees. The Pharisees then have an interaction with the beggar's parents. And then the beggar has another interaction with the Pharisees. And then lastly, he has an interaction personally with Jesus. We're going to walk through each one of these, reading kind of each section of Scripture as it goes, to see and to watch these truths unfold in the life of the beggar. And so, moving on to verses 8 through 12, we see the first interaction. It says, his neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said he's the one. Others were saying no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Verse 12, where is he, they asked. I don't know, he said. You know what's amazing about this text? Is the fact that he looked so different. His life now looked so different that there are people who literally did not even recognize him anymore. You see, when we have an interaction with Jesus and when God's works are displayed or manifested in our lives to no doing of our own, right, it, it makes us look different right? because we do things that we couldn't do otherwise. Right? The power of the Holy Spirit working in us gives us the ability to do things we couldn't do to, 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 to have supernatural patience, right? to have supernatural joy, to respond in, in ways that we couldn't if we didn't have the Holy Spirit working in our life. Right? We just look Different is a theme seen all throughout Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
right? The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Colossians 3, 9 through 10, it says, you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. And Ezekiel 36, 26 is one of my favorites. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This idea of being made new by the workings of God and God alone, creating a new creation in us, even going back to what we talked about last week, Jesus in his interaction with Nicodemus says, you must be born again, right? You must be a new creation in order to inherit the kingdom of life. All right, let me just paint it this way. This is an illustration that you've maybe heard before, but I want you to imagine that, let's just say we invite, as a church, we invite a guest speaker to come and to preach here at ABC, and let's just say that the, the time starts for him to come and to share, and he's not here, right? And I would probably be panicking if that actually happened, like where is the speaker who prepared a message, right, looking into things that I could preach from last minute or asking Pastor Nick or Pastor Brad or someone else to kind of fill the pulpit in his place. And, and 15 minutes later, he still doesn't come. 30 minutes later, he still doesn't come. He shows up at the very end of the service. And we're all wondering, where has this guy been? Right? And he comes up and he says, I'm so, so sorry that I was late. You're not going to believe what happened. I was on my way here. I was on, the, I was on 295. I got a flat tire. So I got out of my car. Uh, I went to change the flat tire. Uh, one of the lug nuts popped off and rolled out in the road, and I went to grab it, and I got hit by a semi-truck. Right? And so that's why I'm late. Right, what would our response be to that? We would either think that that is unbelievable that that actually happened, right? or this guy is crazy. Right? Why? Because you can't get hit by a semi-truck and look the same way. Right? And by the same token, you can't be affected by the works of God in your life and look the same. Yet how many of us claim to have the workings of God in our life, yet our life looks no different than the people around us? Church, one of the most dangerous things we can do is claim Christianity while looking just like the world. I can't tell you, church, how fortunate I feel that only by the grace of God I came to know Jesus because I grew up in a Bible Belt town where all my friends claimed Christianity, yet I, my life looked no different. So I'd tell them, why? why? Why call myself a Christian when my life looks the same as theirs? And so we're not looking different for the sake of looking different. We're, we're, we're looking different because we've understood a truth that God is displaying in us. It's not even ourselves that's making ourselves new. It's the power of the Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to look different. That's what happens when God's works are manifested in us or displayed in us. Which leads to the second interaction that we see in our text, verses 13 through 17. It says this, they brought the man, these are the neighbors, who uh, used to be blind, they brought him to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others are saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He is a prophet, he said. This text, again, the beggar who has now shared his testimony in both action and word. Right? His life definitely looked different, and people were able to see that in him. 
but he also was compelled to share with his words what had happened to him as well. He, one, he shows them how he can see, but he also tells them how he can see with his words. One of the great misconceptions of, of modern day evangelism is that you can uh, evangelize with actions yet without words. St. Francis of Assisi is often coined with the phrase, uh, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. The problem with that is it would be as if we're saying feed the hungry at all times and use food if necessary. Right? We have to proclaim the gospel in word and action. Right? If they see it but don't hear it, then it won't amount to anything. I heard a story just recently about a car salesman who had been following Jesus for 18 years, and he would say, you know, I'm, I'm evangelizing by the way I live my life, right? And, and one of his fellow uh, co-workers, you know, one day came up and said, hey, John, can I, can I meet with you? Um, he's like, it's kind of a private thing. Is it okay if we talk? And the, the car salesman's thinking, all right, here it is. He's seen the hope that's within me, and he's going to ask me about Jesus. Here's my time to shine. 18 years, here, here it comes. And and the guy walks into his office and he says, John, are you a, uh, are you a Buddhist? Uh, because your life is just different, right? It's, you follow Buddha. And he's thinking, well, no, what would make you think that? And he's like, well, you just seem to live different. And, and he realized that unless you use words to share what you believe, then people don't know the reason for the hope that is within us. And the burden doesn't rest on the non-believer to be the one to ask. The burden rests on the believer to go and tell, right? And so it takes both going and telling with action and with word. And notice the response. This is important. There's division, right? When he tells with his words and demonstrates with his actions that he is a new creation because the workings of God in his life, it leads to division. Some of the Pharisaical leaders believed in, some of them didn't, which is important because when we present ourselves, there will be the same thing. And I think for a lot of us, the reason why we don't share is because we're worried about the division, right? But instead, knowing that that's just always going to be an outcome of sharing the gospel. John R.W. Stott says, evangelism must not be defined in terms of its results. To evangelize in the Bible usage does not mean to win converts, but simply to share the good news, irrespective of the results. Or another theologian, Timothy uh, viewer says evangelism must be defined in terms of the message proclaimed, not the results achieved. Our job is to share it. God's job is to bring about the results. Right? We share out of obedience, and we share out of our love for what he's done for us, and we let the chips fall as they may. This leads us to the third interaction that we see, verses 18 through 23, between the, the Pharisees and the beggar. The Jews did not believe this about him, and he was blind and received his sight until they summoned his, until he summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked him, "Is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then did he now, or does he now see? We know this is our son, and that he was born blind." His parents answered, "But we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for." himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said he's of age. Ask 
him. So when our new selves have been presented and the gospel has been shared and acts in the word and, and the vision now has been caused, as scripture tells us it will, our life will in turn be held under a microscope. Right? The Pharisees now are looking for ways to prove this man wrong. And so they go back to the relationship of his parents to try to do so, to disprove the change, to say, well, well, they're not really different. Right? And, and let me just say that as Christians, one, we ought to be able to and ready to defend our position, not as ones who actually are perfect, but rather ones who know the one who is perfect and who is orchestrating divine work in our life, not by our own power. But this leaves me with two practical thoughts that I think can help us as this, as this happens, as, as Christians, because a lot of people don't want to follow Jesus, because they say, well, Christians are just a bunch of what, hypocrites, right? Um, and so there's two practical thoughts that I think can help uh, us in this endeavor. The first thing is don't feel as though we must have all the answers. Don't feel as though you must have all the answers. Verse 17 Going back to our text, it says, They asked the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He responds, He's a prophet. Right? So the, blind, the beggar didn't have all the answers figured out perfectly up to this point either. Right? He, he is teaching what he knows and, and, and doing the best that he can to, to, to be accurate, which we're going to see a little bit more in the verses that, that follow. But, but the truth is, that's all we're called to do, is to teach that which God has, has taught us. Look at going back to Matthew chapter 28, it says, in the Great Commission, right, to, to go into all the, all the nations, baptizing them uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them uh, to observe the things that you have been commanded. Right? Not teach, it doesn't say teach them every single thing in the Bible, right, as if, as if you can't do it until you know every single thing in the Bible, but teach them the things that you have been commanded. Right? As you are being commanded, as you are learning things, as Christ is revealing himself to you in those workings in your life are becoming more and more revealed and and displayed you teach those things right you teach what you know i think a lot of the reasons why we don't uh share or why we kind of uh avoid uh the the microscope if you will of people examining our life is because we feel like we got to have it all figured out perfectly instead of just kind of willingly saying you know what i'm still figuring it out too (laughs) right because god is infinite it would actually minimize who God is to say that you have it all figured out. To think that you could figure out God would minimize who God is. To think that you could put him within the confines of our ability to understand that he is so much greater. And so our not knowing can actually speak to the, the grandness of who God is. All the while we continue to pursue and pursue and pursue. But we don't need to feel like we have every single answer figured out. And then the second thing is this, is to pray for boldness. To pray for boldness as this happens. Notice that the parents' response was out of fear. Right? The, they, the religious leaders had said anyone who claims Christ as the Messiah will be banned from the synagogues. And so they said, you know what? We're not going to do that. Ask the boy. He's of age. Right? They responded out of fear of what might happen as a result. Right? We are not called to respond based on what we think might happen. We're called to obey Christ and and whatever happens as a result is what God orchestrated to happen as a result. Acts chapter 4 is a beautiful example of praying for boldness and receiving boldness. And right before that had happened, uh, Peter and, and others had just preached the gospel, and they had just been warned, don't preach from the gospel. 
They had been beaten and then were rejoicing that they were counted worthy of, of suffering uh, on behalf of the gospel. And, and when they go back to their brothers and sisters, what they don't pray for, they don't pray for, God, relieve us from this burden. Right? Relieve us from the, 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 the obstacles that come or the division that comes or the, the microscope that we're now under or people trying to disprove us. They pray for boldness to, to do it better. Right? And what happens at the end of Acts chapter 4? They receive boldness. Right? They are given boldness. And so knowing this is going to happen as we follow Jesus, as he changes our life and makes it new, as we proclaim the gospel and, and division happens, our friend groups start to separate, people get, you know, even within our family, right? Scripture says that I've not come for, for, for unity, but rather for division, and that, that he's going to divide family amongst family, right? Be- unbelievers amongst believers. And as these things happen, it is important that we stand firm. One, recognizing it's not a matter of us having all the knowledge, all the information figured out, but also praying and asking for boldness, right? Because we can't do it on our own power. Right? I once heard someone say that, that if you feel uh, inadequate to evangelize or inadequate to uh, stand firm in, in the face of persecution, then that is awesome. And that is exactly where you want to be. The moment that you feel like you can do it is, the, is when you've got the problem. Right? When we feel like we can't, it forces us to lean on God to then allow it to happen through our life naturally. And so the Pharisees then decide to go back to the source once again. They had just talked to the beggar, but we see a, an additional interaction with the beggar as well. So verses 24 through 34. Let's continue reading down. This one's a little bit more lengthy. It says, so a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then he asked him, or then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're the man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told him. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied. And are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. Church, a changed life requires perseverance. requires persistence. You know what's incredible about this passage right here, this, this little last exchange, is, is in that culture, because they really believed that if you were born blind or born lame that, or if you had a disease, that you were it was a cause of sin, and that, that you couldn't even get close to him, right? Or you'd, you'd catch their scent, right? And so, so this man was on the lowest totem pole of their culture for his entire life. We don't know how old he is, but, but for a long time. And, and the highest people on that totem pole were the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And so his whole life has been lowly, 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 surrounded by... Pharisaical people telling him his own sin caused him to be there, the sins of his parents. 
And man, look how the, the tables have turned. Now he is literally preaching to these people. Right? There is, there's no amount of our past that, that, that prevents us from being able to be used by God to teach whomever. And so that is exactly what this man is doing. A changed life acquires this kind of perseverance. Again, this is the second conversation he's now had with the Pharisees. Um, but it's a life of perseverance, a life of persistence that is needed to make new disciples, which is exactly what he was trying to do. And, and again, to him, what I love the most is he almost, it seems so obvious to him, right? I was blind and now I see. So do you want to be disciples as well? Right, God has changed my life in this amazing way. Don't you want to follow him too? Don't you want to be his disciple as well? And then in his limited interaction, he's defending the gospel and defending Jesus. And so for us, we must know that we too will face opposition, whether it's through Pharisees that are arguing our conversion or, or whatever it might be, but we, might, we will face persecution, uh, division, and, and, and we will face it all. Right, and we must do so with perseverance because it is worth it. It is worth it because we have Jesus. Again, the main point, the, the workings of God in our life have a joint value that far outweighs the guilt of our former life, but also the current difficulties of our present life. So if you've walked in here and you're walking through hard things, difficult circumstances, I'm not here to minimize that. What I am here to say is that that God wants to reveal himself daily through you in a way that is so much infinitely more joyful than whatever it is that you're facing. Right? And, and so we value them, right? We value them in God over circumstances change. Right? We value God over in the, in his working God over anything else. Listen to how the psalmist said in Psalm 63.3, your steadfast love is better than life. Uh, even more so than my life doesn't even matter compared to your steadfast love, compared to who you are. Right? So when we walk through those difficult things, we get to do so knowing that we have the joy of Jesus within us. So again, the manifestation of the work of God in your life has a joy value that outweighs the guilt of your former life, but also the difficulties of your present life. Which leads us with the final interaction, and it's going to be our invitation this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And it's the interaction the beggar has with Jesus. Verses 35 through 41. And to conclude, John chapter 9, say this. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him, in fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see your sin remains. There's two powerful things I want to end our time with this morning that we see from this passage. The first is notice that as the beggar is going, the beggar had one encounter with Jesus, 
And then after that, uh, you don't, he does not with Jesus anymore. They actually ask him, well, where is Jesus? He says, I don't know. So this life-transforming thing happens, and then he seemingly, or at least for the first four of these conversations, he's kind of off on his own. He really holds himself up pretty good based on the limited understanding he knew of what had just happened. Um, but notice that Jesus is the one that initiates this final interaction. Right? Notice that it says, Jesus heard, Jesus heard they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus sought after this man. And Jesus seeks after us as well. And the last part, or the second thing I want to end us with, is, is that not only did Jesus initiate this relationship, initiate this conversation, but he's also the one that revealed himself. Right? He revealed himself. He, he initiated him. He sought him. And he revealed himself to him. And he told him, I'm the one speaking to you. And then the man found salvation. Church, I don't think we realize just how fortunate we are. From no doing of our own, the God of the universe created you and I. From no doing of our own. We, we couldn't, we had no thoughts to, to say, man, it'd be nice to have a life. But God created us and gave us free life. And he gave us and, and, and made our life uh, to, to worship perfectly with him forever, which is the best life we could have possibly been given. And then you and I, out of our stubbornness and sinfulness, we chose to rebel against him. But God loved us so much that he also redeemed us as well. That we were once all blind, but now see. And for those of you who are in this place who are still blind, I just want you to know that, that, that today is the day of salvation. Actually, better yet, Scripture doesn't say today is the day of salvation. It says now is the day of salvation. Uh, you've probably heard me say it several times, but if you're drowning, you don't need a, a life preserver thrown to you today. You need one thrown to you now. And for those of you who are sitting here Maybe it's the guilt of things you know you've done. Maybe it's the embarrassment of, of, of kind of just thinking you're a Christian or just kind of being in a Christian group but not actually knowing. Whatever might be the barrier, I just want you to know the same truth that, that Jesus speaks to the beggar is true for you today, that, that the joys of God working in your life for the first time will outweigh whatever guilt or shame or fear or anxiety that you might be feeling today. And know also that you don't have to wait any further into this service to, to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You don't have to wait till we sing the invitation, but you can do that now. The quietness of your own seat, but I'd encourage you to publicly confess and join our church family as well. Um, but then also, for those of us who know Jesus, we're going to face difficulties in this life. Right? We're going to face challenging obstacles as we preach and proclaim the gospel as we experience division in our families and amongst coworkers and, and friends and our life's going to be placed under a microscope and that's not even to consider the things that, that, that are completely unrelated, just hard circumstantial things that happen to all people equally. We're going to face those as well, yet we get to do so with an inner joy that just far surpasses all of those things. When I think of my life and when I think of 
non-believers. I just think, I don't know how I could even go through life without Jesus. It's just too hard. It's just too difficult. It's because it is. We weren't meant to. And so if you're a believer, be encouraged that wherever you're at, God is, is with you. He is seeking you out. He's a, he wants to reveal himself to you daily um, that we might live and serve him with our, with our whole lives. So the invitation this morning is simple. I'm going to give it in three parts, as we often do. If you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you to accept and receive him today. Um, and only you know, and, and again, you can probably convince a lot of us in here that you are if you wanted to. Um, I remember being pretty good at convincing people. Um, you can fool me, uh, but you can't fool God. And so if, if that is you, wherever you might be, uh, I want to just invite you to surrender your life to Jesus today. Sincerely, fully, recognizing that, that his steadfast love is better than life. Uh, you're not losing life, you're gaining it. Uh, the second invitation is if you are a believer. I just want to invite you to carry this joy with you, regardless of what you're going through, to preach and proclaim the word joyfully in action and in word, uh, boldly without fear of the, the consequence or division that's going to be caused, with perseverance as you're going to have ongoing interaction and relationships with people who continually say no or, or take longer than just one conversation, that you carry that joy with you. Um, and then lastly, as we often invite as well, is if you uh, would like to just be a part of our church family um, and would like to just make that commitment, we want to invite you to do that as well. It is so hard to, to do all these alone. I was teaching in Margie's class this morning and just was reminding our group that, that we need this. Right? We need church community and accountability. We were not created and meant to do it alone. Um, and so if you've been trying to do that, uh, we just want to invite you to join us here at ABC to, to be doing and living all this out together. Um, and so however you, wherever you find yourself today, know that, um, that God is asking all of us to respond in one way or another. And that's what the next part of the service is going to be, is a time of response. I'll be here at the front. Uh, Pastor Nick, Pastor Brett up here. We'd love to meet, talk, pray with you. Um, and just leave united as one family in Christ, uh, living this out together in a world that desperately needs to hear it. Let's pray.